Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi, my name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. This episode is called Seven. That is more than six, but less than eight. These podcasts are sequential. Hopefully the idea is you start with one and then work your way forward. That would be great. I have, of course, no control over what you do, but that's the general idea. Uh, Anyway, I I just want to say thanks for listening. If you've never heard this podcast before, I can tell you that Keith Quick is a time traveler. That he is stuck in Camelot. And he's trying to get home to his wife. Anyway, thanks for listening. The news is next. Hi, you're listening to WXYZ live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate aggregate date is the 12th of July on the island's new 15-month calendar. For those of you from the 24th century, today is the anniversary of the fall of the United States. For anyone else from before then, spoilers. Now here's the post-apocalyptic report. Holographic Produce is having a recall on the psychedelic kiwis. Apparently, they are not very good. It's your own kiwi, so you can add as many grains of salt as you wish. Just consider this one as having a warning on it, okay? A lawsuit brought in San Diego court yesterday blames a local time traveler for the rise of Hitler in several timelines. The resident, identified as Rory Takamini, was visiting medieval Japan and apparently stepped on a butterfly. The subsequent series of cause and effect actions apparently escalated until the Nazis came to power and, well, not time travelers, you get the idea. Pre-trial motions are set to begin next week. Viking Arwen Longbeard announced his plan to run for Santiago mayor in last year's election. He will be running on a platform of free mead to all on Friday evenings. Political analysts are pointing out that he's already lost. Everyone else is saying, hey, let's hear him out. Finally, for those of you who are interested, the San Tiempo University will be having their annual five-dimensional Frisbee tournament on Friday at both the apex of the mountain and Central Park in New York City during the year 1987. That's the post-apocalyptic report this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now, the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time.
The night in the cart. Strange as it may seem, there were times when life in Camelot was pleasantly dull. It was a warm summer evening. The seemingly endless summer fog had finally parted, and the air blowing in through the window was crisp and clear. Arthur had been out hunting all day and had retreated to the round table, where several of the knights had joined him at a card game. The round table was, in fact, used as a card table more times than anyone wanted to admit. More than once it had had pretzels and beer on it. Guinevere had retreated to her room, accompanied by her handmaiden, Elaine, where they were doing needlepoint and enjoying a jug of wine. Elaine had only recently become a handmaiden, and being new to the profession of acting like the best friend of the queen, tended to laugh a little too hard at everything Guinevere said. Gwen had taken to nodding and smiling politely when she did this, hoping all the while that this phase would end soon. Dinner was lovely, wasn't it? Gwen said, filling a gap in the conversation that seemed to have gone on for a little too long. Yes, it was, Elaine agreed. <laughs> the stars are beautiful tonight, aren't they? Yes, and <laughs> more nervous laughter. If... It's like this again tomorrow, then we'll have to have a campfire in the courtyard, perhaps with singing. An excellent idea, my lady, Elaine said, and she laughed so hard that Guinevere wondered if she should point her toward the loo. It had been going on like that for a while, and Gwen desperately needed a break. Why don't you go down to the scullery and see if you can find us a block of cheese to go with this wine, Gwen suggested, which she hoped would get her a twenty-minute break. That was how it happened. A simple desire to have a few minutes to herself. Gwen was the wife of the king. She should have known better. But she wanted to be alone, at least for a little while. She did not hear the door open or close, but he was there. Under other circumstances, he wouldn't have seemed so imposing. Jack Cassidy had cleaned himself up quite a bit. He was clean-shaven, and his hair was close-cropped. He was wearing a red tunic, and if someone had been walking by, they might have thought he was a handsome young knight paying Guinevere a visit. The queen knew better. You might think that Guinevere's first instinct would be to scream bloody murder or fight him off, but you would be wrong. Guinevere had been trained by her mother far too well. She understood that when you are about to be assaulted by a band, the best thing to do is act like everything is completely normal. She put down her needlepoint and looked up at the man and said, Hello, in the friendliest voice she could imagine. Yo, Guinevere, Jack said. That's right, Guinevere said. Who are you? The last time I saw you, I was Sir Miles Moratorum, Jack said. He had learned the advantages of a good pseudonym. The knight with the skull on his shield, Guinevere said, remembering. You fought well. Not well enough, Jack answered bitterly. Not everyone who becomes a knight wins a tourney, Gwen said. Just the good ones, Jack replied. I'm afraid you'll have to come with me. Guinevere understood the position she was in. She didn't protest. She didn't scream. She didn't even nod her head. She just went with him. Keith had just returned to his room in Camelot. Arthur had just cleaned him out at poker. 
truth be told, it is very difficult to beat a person at a game of cards when their face is printed on the money, but Keith always tried. His room was still small and was, if anything, more sparsely furnished than it had been when he was a blacksmith. Still, it was in one of the castle's turrets, which appealed to the boy inside him, and it had a view of the sea, which appealed to his inner adult. He had taken to spending his evening staring out the window at the stars before turning into bed. It was not a spectacular way to spend an evening, but Camelot was lovely, and his days were filled with camaraderie and adventure. The moon was in the far east tonight and not visible from his window, but Keith could see Mars on the far side of the horizon. Maybe sometime a long way off in the distant future, Alice is looking at Mars and thinking of me, he thought, and then he realized, no, she wouldn't. She thinks I'm a murderer. Keith kicked the wall petulantly. A stone by his foot came loose. Keith bent over and looked at it. Before he knew what he was doing, he was on the floor, taking the stone out of its place and looking at it. The stone covered up a space where someone had hollowed out a small area and left something inside. Something was in there. Keith couldn't see exactly what it was. He reached in and pulled out a small brown bag that had something squarish inside it. Keith opened the bag and looked inside. It was a book. He took it out and looked at it. It was a copy of The Great Gatsby. Keith burst into tears. He burst into tears partly because it was a sign. It was a sign that some other time traveler had been here. Someone, somehow, had been to this place. He also burst into tears because, and he had no real reason to believe this, he was sure that someone had left the book knowing he would find it. Someone knew that he was there. If they knew he was here, that could only mean one thing. Sooner or later, he was going to get home. That was the only way he could make heads or tails of it. He would go home one day as soon as he fulfilled his destiny. However, mostly he was crying because for the first time in years he was holding a book. A real book. A real story from beginning to end. In the past few years, Keith had learned far too well the reason people had driven themselves to medieval levels of Christian fervor. It was because the Bible was a book that they heard stories from, and in this era, stories were the rarest commodity. Keith could not overemphasize how serious this problem was. He had been in the scullery the other day and had listened to a story about a pig that one of the kitchen megs grew up with for 20 minutes. It occurred to him that this also meant something else. Someone out there knew what he was going through. They knew how hard it was and they wanted to help him get through it. Too bad you couldn't leave me a radio, he said to the person who wasn't there any longer. Keith was sure that there was only one person who could have done this. It had to be Merlin. Morgan had said that Merlin was a time traveler. Merlin would have been here. Merlin might have even been in this room once upon a time. Keith had never met Merlin, at least not yet. Did Merlin ever meet Lancelot? Keith didn't know of any story where he had, but there were a million stories and he didn't know them all. 
Well, one way or another, he was going to have to make sure that he did. Keith thought of something. He opened the book. On the front page was a note written in shaky script. No one's life is a story. Fat lot of good that does me, Keith thought. You couldn't leave me a schedule showing when the nearest time machine would be stopping by? Keith was about to start reading the book when there was a knock upon the door. It was Arthur. For a moment, he just stood there staring at Keith, breathing heavily. His eyes looked panicked. It's Gwen, Arthur said. Someone has taken her. They weren't running, but they were walking at a fast enough pace that they might as well have been. Keith had stuffed most of his worldly possessions into a bag and was heading to his horse. Arthur was following him and trying to pretend that trailing after Keith was a particularly kingly thing to do. And you're sure it was this skull knight that kidnapped her? Arthur was saying. They were having a bit of a circular conversation. Arthur was asking questions that he had asked 20 minutes ago and Keith was giving the same answers that he had the first time. His name is Jack Cassidy, and I'm sure, Keith said. Why? Arthur asked. Because he thinks I took his seat at the round table, Keith said. Which, to be fair, I did. He also thinks that he's been given a hard life and he's the kind of person who would spend the rest of his days lashing out at people rather than making the world a better place. How are you going to find him? Arthur asked. I don't know, Keith admitted. But since I'm pretty sure this entire exercise is a stupid excuse to get my attention, I'm hoping it won't be too hard. Arthur stared at his friend. Feeling powerless was an unfamiliar position for him, and Keith could tell that Arthur desperately needed to do something. I'm sending Gawain with you, he insisted. Keith knew that it would be pointless to argue. Good idea, he said. They found their way to the stables. Gawain was already there. The burly Scotsman was saddling up his horse. He was dressed in a fur cloak that looked like it would be better suited for a trek through northern Sweden. He gave Keith a nod. Aye, he said in a gruff voice that matched his exterior in every way. Keith knew Gawain but never really talked to him much. He suspected that Gawain had resented him for knocking him out of first place in the overall knight rankings, so it seemed best to give the man his space where possible. Traveling together would require a lot of one-on-one time. They would have to work together in a manner that would require a great deal of communication and trust. Keith didn't relish the thought of this, but he tried to bury the feeling of discomfort as far inside him as was humanly possible. After all, 
it was nothing compared to what Arthur was feeling. Keith saddled up his horse. Chestnut looked as though she felt that the thought of a ride this late at night was an atrocious idea. Keith gave her a friendly pat before pointing her toward the castle gates. "'Bring Gwen home,' Arthur said. "'I miss her terribly.' "'I do too,' Keith said, and he followed Gawain out the gate. "'They rode toward the downs. "'Ironically, it was still a beautiful night. "'The crickets were chirping and the stars were bright. "'They were brighter here than they had ever been in Keith's own century.' even when he was growing up in Nebraska. So, how should we go about this? Keith asked as they headed out into the dark. Have you ever tracked a man before? Gawain asked. No, Keith admitted. Think about it then, Gawain said. If you were a man on the run with the queen, what would you do? I'd avoid the town for one thing, Keith said. Aye, you probably would. Gowen agreed. At least on the way out. But what about on the way in? On the way in, I might stop at the inn and have a ale and a good meal, Keith admitted, especially if I was nervous. Aye, I would too. Let's check at the inn and see what they say. The inn in Caerleon was nicer than most, in part because it was so close to Camelot. It had good wine and food and was popular with merchants that did business with the castle. Keith would like to have stopped and had a drink under other circumstances. It was run by a kind-looking woman with white hair and a red face, who said that she had seen a young man with a sword strapped to his belt, who had come in and drunk two glasses of her best wine before heading off in the direction of the castle. Did he say anything about where he was going or where he might have come from? No, but he seemed to have plenty of coin on him, and he had some steak and kidney pie, too. That wasn't much help, Keith said as they headed out the door. No, Gawain acknowledged, but if he stopped for a meal, he might have wanted to make sure that his horse got one, too. They stopped at the stables. A middle-aged man with a friendly smile and less than the traditional number of teeth told Keith and Gawain that Jack Cassidy had stopped there too and had overpaid for a bag of oats for his horse, adding that he would be spending the profits down at the inn that they were just at. He seemed to be very free with his money, Keith observed. Maybe he thought that Sturm in the castle was a bit of a suicide mission, Gawain replied. Figured he should spend his money while he had it. Keith shook his head. The Jack Cassidy I knew was poor as a church mouse. Where did he get the money? You said he could do magic? Gawain asked. He disappeared right before me into thin air, Keith acknowledged. I'd call that magic, wouldn't you? Aye, he said. Did he do any alchemy? Keith shook his head. I, I wouldn't know, he said. Maybe not, though, Gawain asked hopefully. What are you driving at? Well, the ability to disappear, it might make you a good highwayman, Gawain said. Let's check the roads. The road that led out of Caerleon was six feet wide and was paved with cobblestones as far as the forest, which made it practically an autobahn by medieval standards. 
Travelers in the Dark Ages needed to be big believers in the idea that getting there was much more than half the fun. If you were going to rob someone, this would be the place to do it, Keith observed. Aye, Gawain agreed. How are we supposed to tell if Cassidy robbed someone anyway? Keith asked. Gawain looked at him. I was hoping that you would know. They headed westbound down the road. At this point, it seemed very much that they were headed on a wild goose chase, except that they caught a lucky break. Right around the time the sun rose, they found a small cottage near the road where a little man stood chopping wood. Have you seen a knight come through here, perhaps carrying a shield with a black skull on it? Keith asked. He would have been heading toward the castle. I wouldn't have called him a knight, the little man said without stopping what he was doing. What makes you say that? Gawain asked. Caught him robbing another gent coming down the road, didn't I? The little man said. You didn't stop him? Keith asked. The dwarf sized him up. Can tell you've been spending too much time at the castle, he said. Keith decided that he would let that one go. Did he come back this way? He did not, the little man said. And if he'd come riding by in the middle of the night, I would have heard. Keith blinked exhaustion out of his eyes. Thanks, he said wearily, and they rode on into the forest. He came this way on the way to the castle, Keith said, as they followed the path, but he didn't come back here. I would have been too easy to track on the road, Gowing agreed. This was the quickest way, but on the way back he would have taken a more discreet route. The river, Keith said. Without a doubt, Gowing agreed. We're on the shorter route. If we press on, it's possible that we might be able to catch him. By noon, both men were wiped, but they had found their way out of the forest. Shortly thereafter, they came to a crossroads. This left them with a choice to make. The eastern road is closer to the river, Keith pointed out. Closer, aye, Gawain agreed. But that way he would be rowing against the current. The western road is farther from the river, but the current is in that direction. I say he went that way. Wouldn't he worry about being swept out to sea? Keith speculated. I just kidnapped the queen, Gawain pointed out. Making good decisions might not be a strong suit. Keith could see his point. He noticed a barn owl sitting on a tree branch. He stared at it. And the owl spread its wings and flew away, soaring high over the sky toward a lonely-looking mountaintop in the distance. That mountain over there might be a good place to hole up, Keith observed, and he pointed to a hillside that looked like it was part of an unnamed national forest. Aye, Gowing agreed. If we ride hard, we could be there by nightfall. Keith believed that they were on the right track. He was sure they could find Cassidy, and he was sure they could rescue Guinevere. But he felt that confidence needed to be matched with perseverance. So, at his suggestion, they rode hard well into the afternoon, which was when he made a terrible mistake. Chestnut had served Keith well for many years and had served the farmer well before that. She was old. 
If Keith had ever tried to ride her into battle, any knight would have told him he needed to find another mount. Now she had been riding all night. Keith should not have been surprised when he stopped to get her a drink of water, and she lay down and refused to get up. Come on, girl, Keith said, patting her on the rump in a moment of denial. Chestnut just lay there, breathing hard. Gawain came over to look. How old is that horse? I don't know, Keith admitted. I've had her for a few years. You'd better give her some rest and get her back to the castle, Gawain suggested. All right, Keith agreed, but it wasn't all right. Chestnut lay where she was and didn't get up no matter how much Keith prompted her. After thirty minutes, she closed her eyes. She wouldn't get back up again. Keith Quick was not a man who lived easily with his regrets. In the ensuing years, he would list Chestnut's death as his single biggest mistake in his time at Camelot. Take your time, Gawain said. I'll head out after the Queen. You can catch me up. A dead horse. It wasn't the worst thing that had ever happened to him, but it was a moment and it gave Keith quick pause. There is a lot of imposter syndrome involved in being thrust into a life that you have already heard about. Perhaps he was feeling sorry for himself because a dead horse seemed indicative of the way his life had become detached from the modern world. He had been riding a horse, it had died, and he couldn't even bury it. He had to wander down the road on foot until he found a farmer with a cart, who he paid a few coins to go and get her. It wasn't the knighthood or the time in Camelot or being Arthur's friend. It was grief over a dead horse and the knowledge that this was simply the way the world here worked and there was nothing he could do about it. He rode back in the cart with the farmer and made him promise he would take care of Chestnut using her name several times to indicate how special she was. My name is Lancelot, he added. I am the queen's champion. He hoped that it would do some good and they would treat her respectfully. In all honesty, it was a poor time to start throwing around his name. He was now a knight in a cart, and even a 20th century man understood that that made him the lowest of the low. However, at that moment he got lucky again. You're not a queen's favorite. The old farmer sputtered through missing teeth. I know you ain't. What makes you so sure? Keith asked. Only I saw her heading down the road on the back of a horse of some bloke, didn't I? And it wasn't you, so you ain't her champion, are you? Please, Keith said. Which way did they go? The farmer shrugged. I suppose they went up to the castle on the other side of the hill. Take me, Keith said. And then he added, please. It wasn't more than a 20-minute ride before Keith could see it. The castle on the hill was an aging stone structure that had started to sink into the earth. It had probably been impressive once, but it had started to crumble. Is it inhabited? Keith asked. Not usually, the farmer said with a thoughtful scratch on his chin. The queen was headed to an abandoned castle with a random knight, and you didn't think to say anything? Keith asked sarcastically. He had a sword, and I didn't, the farmer bristled. 
so I figured it was best to keep my mouth shut. Besides, sometimes knights stay there when they're passing through. So the castle is still fortified, but not normally occupied, Keith asked. I suppose it is, the farmer admitted. Sounds like a good hideout, Keith said. Then he thought of something. Is there a siege door, he asked. The farmer gave him a funny look. A, a, a back door, Keith clarified, a secret way in. Something that might let me sneak up on him unawares. Ah, the farmer replied. You'll be wanting the sword bridge. The locals said that the Bridge of Swords was a relic of an ancient battle long forgotten. It had spanned a cleft in the mountainside that was too wide to jump. For reasons unknown, some general had tried to attack the castle from the rear and had gotten routed rather badly. The swords of the dead had been left there as a kind of honorific tribute to the fallen, and then they had rusted into place as the wood of the bridge had begun to rot away. The result was a bramble made of iron, sharp as a razor. There was scarcely a spot six inches wide that wasn't touched by a blade in one spot or another. The purpose was clear. If you wanted to get across, you were going to have to accept that you were going to get sliced. Good luck, the farmer said, and he didn't wait to find out what happened to Keith. It took Keith quite a while to figure out how to cross the Bridge of Swords. The trick to it, as it turned out, was to move at a turtle's pace. This was clever. It meant that if the owner of the castle didn't want you to get all the way across, then you probably weren't going to be able to do it. Keith would have to hope that Jack Cassidy wouldn't notice that he was there. It was a dance, the path across, two steps forward, then a twist to the left, then a duck, and then a kneel, all done at a crawl with sword blades passing by within millimeters of your skin. To make matters worse, the wood was rickety and it felt like it would give away at any moment. Keith got through, but he got stabbed twice. The first time in the back of the right knee and the second time in the left foot. The injuries were largely superficial and wouldn't affect him in the long run. But they would put him at a disadvantage in a fight. The bridge was no more than ten meters long and it must have taken Keith an hour to cross. Still, he made it. Once across the Bridge of Swords, Keith found his way to a proper siege door, and he went quickly inside. It was clear that the castle had been abandoned for the better part of a century. What little light there was seemed to be filtered through cobwebs and stale air. The castle was big enough that it would be difficult to find Jack. It would be harder still to find him without letting him know that Keith was there. Keith drew his sword. He figured the best bet would be to move through the castle slowly, like he had over the Bridge of Swords. Keith moved forward slowly and began to search the castle. As Keith's irises opened up to the size of dinner plates, and his ears became more attuned to every creak and scuttle that the castle seemed to be making, there wasn't a mouse that farted that he didn't hear. Slowly, the tiny creaks and whispers gradually started to tell him a story. He wasn't alone. He found his way to an ancient throne room. It had been beautiful once, but more recently it had looked as if it had been used as an animal den. Every footstep echoed through the room like a thunderclap. 
Somewhere off in the distance, Keith heard Guinevere scream. Any pretense that Keith had about hiding his approach was immediately thrown out the window. He immediately broke into a run, but almost immediately realized that he was running blind. Which way did the sound come from? Above. It had to come from above. But which direction? Keith found a stairwell and bounded up at a speed that almost guaranteed he would end up hurting himself. But where is she? He thought to himself. Where would Jack take her? To the king's chamber, Keith thought, answering his own question. Whatever this kidnapping was about, Jack's feelings of denial, of betrayal, of whatever, he would definitely want to declare himself king of the castle, which would undoubtedly mean he would find Jack in the biggest room on the top floor. It was five minutes before he found another staircase and found the door to the king's chamber. He was sure he was in the right place. There was a telltale glow of fire emanating from a crack under the doorway in front of him. He put his hand on the door, took a deep breath, and ran into the room with his sword drawn. The king's quarters were the one room in the building that seemed to be untouched, although Keith didn't have time to admire the decor. Jack Cassidy had apparently had at least enough of a warning that Keith was in the castle to draw his own sword and face the doorway. Guinevere was sitting on the bed. She was clutching a blanket up to her neck, and her eyes had the overly dilated look of someone who was pretty sure they were about to die. Keith gave her only the briefest glance. Jack smiled wickedly. Sir Lancelot in the flesh! Who would have known? You were good in the lists, Jack complimented Keith. Thanks, Keith said. That's a nice chainmail shirt you've got there, Jack added. They seem to have become all the rage with the younger knights lately. I was a trendsetter, Keith said nonchalantly. It's good against attorney, Lance, I'll grant you, Jack said. But that's different than being good against something sharp, isn't it? Jack's sword came at Keith like a fastball thrown right over home plate. Keith deflected the blow and came back with one of his own, not nearly as hard, but which came much closer to connecting. It nearly sliced through Jack's neck, and it would have been the end of him if Jack hadn't backed up quickly. Jack parried and rolled backwards. Keith was on top of him, and it would have made a short fight, except that suddenly Jack was behind him in a manner that didn't make any sense, and Keith was put in the position of someone in a dream where you're forced to react to the unreality of the situation. He was able to spin around just quick enough to block Jack's sword from taking off his head, but ended up down on one knee, making it impossible for him to thrust. Instead, he dodged several blows until he was able to get back up on his feet, but the moment he tried to attack, Jack Cassidy disappeared again. It's magic, Keith thought to himself, and then he tried awfully hard not to think. He needed to focus on the sword that was hammering at him. Combat with a broadsword is a little like dancing with the world's angriest partner, and in Keith's case, his partner kept appearing and disappearing around the room. Still, Keith had an entire year at Camelot to prepare for this moment, and back in the future he had seen every Errol Flynn movie, most of them twice. He parried and dodged and weaved with grace and power and poise, and it really looked like he might win right up until the moment that Jack knocked the sword out of his hand. Keith watched the sword skitter across the floor. It was far enough away that he couldn't reach it without dying. He did have a dagger tucked in his belt, and he pulled it out. 
It was just long enough that it would force Jack Cassidy to cut his hand off before killing him, giving him what would probably amount to an extra four seconds to live, albeit in agonizing pain. Then Keith thought of something. He threw the dagger at Jack's head. Jack ducked and smiled wickedly. Keith stared directly at him. He needed to keep him talking. Nice trick, he said. Where did you pick that up? I picked it up from an old friend of yours, Jack said. Did you know that if you slay a magical creature, you can absorb some of his magic? The dragon, Keith surmised. You've slain the dragon. And a few other things, too, Jack admitted. You see, while you've been busy being a knight, I have been out killing the kingdom's monsters. While you were here, I'm sorry... What is it you do in Camelot? I, I, I don't really know. Archery, hunting deer, playing the lute, maybe. While you were lute playing, I was saving the kingdom from the evils of the world. Of course, I'm sure you're good at lute playing. He's also known for being nice to pretty ladies, Guinevere added, and she stabbed Jack in the back with Keith's dagger. Jack disappeared immediately. Keith wondered how far he, he could teleport, if there was a range or something like there was with a radio signal. He supposed that if there wasn't a range like a radio signal, then Jack could be hundreds of miles away. Then again, if there was, he might be nearby. For the moment, Keith let the matter drop. Jack was gone, and they were safe. That was what counted. Did I kill him? Guinevere asked. Keith shook his head. I'm pretty sure that if he were dead, he would be lying on the floor in front of us. He won't be coming back, though. That injury will take weeks to heal. A pity, Gwen said. It would be satisfying to be rid of him. Keith put his arms around her. It was a moment he would remember for the rest of his life, in part because he would be forced to recount it so many times. Whatever had happened to them before was in the past now. They had saved each other. A part of Keith, a very large part, wanted to go out and find Jack and exact his revenge on him, kill him right then and there and be done with it. And if he was younger, he might have done just that. He knew he would never find him and he could feel the adrenaline draining out of him. So he let the moment go. They spent the night in the king's bedchamber. It was the only room in the house that seemed even remotely livable. And under the circumstances, Guinevere understandably did not want to be alone. Different chroniclers would tell the story of that night in different ways. Chrétien de Troyes would say that he couldn't tell the story, that the details were too personal, and then would immediately imply that they had a wild night of passion. T.H. White would make this the beginning of a long-standing love affair that went on for many years, as if the Queen of England could somehow sneak a man into her bedroom and no one would notice. Others would be more explicit, offering details of the night in question. Some would go the other way, saying the merest thought of having sex with Guinevere would inspire Lancelot to wear a hair shirt for the remainder of his life. The truth was simpler than that. Keith did not have sex with Guinevere that night. It was not because of some holy devotion to the ideals of chivalry. 
He would have found that silly and not in keeping with life as he had led it over the various centuries that he had popped in and out of. It was not his wife, either. By now it had been many years since she had dumped him into a giant hole in space-time, and he was pretty sure that she would have moved on with her life even if she ever found out the truth about who killed her ex-boyfriend. It wasn't even that he wouldn't want to betray his friendship with Arthur, either. Arthur was a good friend, and Keith respected him and appreciated all he had done for him. But he was still a man, and he hadn't been alone with a woman in a very long time. It should probably go without saying that it was not because he did not think she was beautiful. He had told Arthur that she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, and he hadn't lied. No, the truth was that he was simply exhausted. Guinevere and Lancelot's night of passion went the way of exhausted parents who have discovered that in spite of the great longing for each other, chasing children around all day has left them with a desire to do little else but rest. However, that didn't mean he didn't talk to her. It was late in the evening when Keith woke up. He was aware that he was lying on the bed and Gwen was watching over him. He didn't remember her being there. What happened? he asked, shooting up with a bolt. The sky was dark outside. How long had he been out? He couldn't say. You've been sleeping for hours, Gwen said. I thought you might want to eat. There's food, Keith said, surprised. Whatever Sir Miles wanted, he didn't plan on us starving to death, Guinevere confirmed. There's some mutton. It's even fresh. Jack, Keith corrected. I beg your pardon, Gwen asked. He used the name Sir Miles in the tourney, but his real name was Jack Cassidy, Keith explained. I take it you knew him, then? Only briefly, Keith said. We had something in common once, and we were thrown together. What was it that you had in common? Gwen asked. We were strangers in a strange land, Keith said. "'Was he the one who was with you that day?' Gwen asked. "'When you negotiated the peace between Arthur and my father, "'and the great dragon flew overhead.' "'He was,' Keith said. "'Guinevere said nothing for a long time. "'I remember you were with someone, "'but the dragon was so dramatic and you were, well, strange. "'I guess I sort of forgot about who it was that was with you.' Do you think that's where this all began? Keith shook his head. He was always angry that nobody else saw him as the hero of the world. I don't think it started with you, and I don't think it will end with me. You sound like Merlin, Gwen said. Whenever he talked, he said a lot of silly things. Keith remembered the book. Did he have the room in the castle that I have now? Now that you mention it, I think he did, Gwen said. Why do you ask? Keith shook his head. Something I found of his. A book. Gwen smiled. I'm not surprised. He had a lot of them. They are always in a language that I could never understand. Keith realized that the language that Guinevere did not understand was English, but kept the knowledge of that irony to himself. What was he like? 
It's tough to say, Guinevere said. He flickered like a flame. He would be happy one minute and sad the next. He was wise one minute and then foolish the next. He seemed to know everything that was to come and very little of what had already been. He would be at Arthur's side for months and then he would be gone again for months at a time. And one day he just disappeared, books and all. When was that? Keith asked. Guinevere considered this. It was a little before the tournament you won, she admitted. I suppose that was why they ended up giving you his room. They said at the time he went off with a girl. Don't know if it's true. Keith slept hard through the night. In the morning, he and Guinevere got up and walked back toward the castle. Gawain was the first to find them. He gave Keith a sideways look that both he and Guinevere would grow accustomed to in the years to come. He knew that regardless of what had happened that night, people would assume the worst, and the rumor would spread like a virus. There was no story about Helen's father that was more controversial than the night of the cart, and none that fascinated her more. Whenever she asked her parents about whether or not Spring's version of the story was true, they would say yes and make no other reply. She had no reason to doubt it other than the fact that doubting it was the more interesting option of the two. The question she should have asked, of course, was not whether or not it was true, but whether or not her mother thought it was true. And if it was, how did her mother feel about it? The answer would have surprised her. Hi. My name is David McLean. I'm the creator of this podcast. I just wanted to say thanks for listening. You know, I'm supposed to say things like, if you like this podcast, please subscribe and write a review. You know, I I have a feeling that most people who do podcasts, when they say that, they don't ever read the reviews and they don't know who the people who subscribe are. They're just looking at a number. Well, my number is one. As far as I'm concerned, the only person that matters listening to this podcast is you. It's just you and me. And I just wanted to say thanks. The Infinitely Spiraling Clock is a book I wrote that I haven't published yet. It's the sequel to a book called The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum. If you would like, you can buy The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum from my wife's website, felixeddy.com. She did a bunch of great pictures for it. You can also get it from my publisher, Mirror World. Don't buy it from Amazon. I, I don't make a dime if you do. Anyway, that's it. I just want to say thanks. Next week, we're going to see the Battle of Mount Baden. Thanks. <laughs>